Hello, I'm Amir Tibon and you're listening to Haaretz Weekly. Later on today's show, we have a fascinating conversation with Israeli author Nir Bar-Am on his book World Shadow on the future of the Israeli left, or at least what's left of it, and on the politics of inequality in Israel, Palestine and elsewhere. But first of all, a few words about the Jewish year 5782, which will end next week when Jews all over the world will celebrate Rosh Hashanah. This episode will be our last one before the holiday. Next week I'm hoping to be on a beach somewhere and not here in the studio. I will only meet if there's a real crisis happening in Israel. And until that happens, we do want to talk a bit about the dramatic year that we experience here at Haaretz and that you, listeners, were following through our episodes. Here to discuss some of the outgoing year's most fascinating and important events is Noah Landau, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Haaretz. Hello, Noah. Hi, Amir. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we like to say that our podcast is an audio guide to Israel, the Middle East, and the Jewish world, and so we decided to talk about some of the important events in those three arenas in the Jewish years 5, 7, 8, 2. I guess we'll start with Israel, the biggest story of the year. Is it a story of success or failure? I'm not sure yet, but the story of Israel's so-called government of change. Yes, absolutely. Of course, that was the main story in Israel in uh, the past uh, Jewish year. Um, I think that, you know, the question whether it was a success or failure, in the end, in the, you know, if you look at the, the actual results, the fact that they collapsed and we have another election coming, uh, you know, it's not a big success, right? Maybe it's a success on a more symbolic level, uh, the fact that for the first time uh, ever in history, there was an actual uh, our party within uh, the coalition, not in the government, but in the coalition, which does open a door for uh, very interesting trends and uh, cooperations that we can maybe see in the uh, following election. Depends on the results, of course. Um, but um, I think, you know, we can't really look at it as totally black or white. In the end, yes, they did not succeed as a coalition, but there were several trends, I think, that might be a success in the longer term. And over the pages of Haaretz in print and the web pages and the app of Haaretz online, we saw this endless debate about whether the name government of change was fitting or not, whether this government actually brought a change. I agree with you that on the issue of involving an Arab party within the coalition, it was a major change and one that, in my view, Israel needed and was waiting for. In other arenas, maybe not as much. Well, there's a famous saying in uh, French, uh, le plus ça change, le plus uh, la même chose, which means the more things change, the more they are the same. And hello to our listeners in France, maybe. I think I think this is pretty much uh, what happened, that um, in terms of policy, if you look really at the deeper sense of politics, there wasn't a lot of change. Uh, in the end, the status quo on Israel's major issues, uh, if we look at security, we could maybe talk about foreign affairs. I think that there might have been some small changes. Uh, for example, um, there was less of a hug to the extreme right all over the world uh, when Lapid took office in the foreign ministry. Um, but still, I think that uh, in the sense of the deeper policy, there wasn't a lot of change. We saw in the Palestinians a complete stalemate, right? The, nothing really moved. I think the one achievement this government likes to point out on the Palestinian arena is giving work permits to Palestinians from Gaza to work in Israel, which I don't think is not an important issue, but it's a very tactical one. It's not, like you said, a big policy change, a strategic move. 
on Iran, Lapid and Netanyahu basically sound like the same politician. On Iran, on the Palestinian issue, um, also, if you look even, you can even say that in some terms it was even worse, because if you look at the number of Palestinians who were killed, um, the incidents with violent settlers, um, the uh, buildings in, in the settlements, um, construction, etc. So you can even say that in, in some terms it was even maybe worse than, than other governments. But you did mention that in one arena of uh, foreign policy uh, and you know very specifically the juncture of politics and diplomacy, there was some change that this government, unlike the previous Netanyahu led governments, wasn't so much uh, in a state of constant hugging with people like uh, Victor Orban or Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, the far right global alliance. Right. And also in terms of the discourse, um, which, you know, it's a question how much the discourse um, is important versus the actual, you know, what's happening on the ground. But in terms of discourse, it was a different government. It was less incitement. The rhetoric, you know, around Israel's left and our Palestinian citizens, it was different. Was there still occupation? Yes, some people will say maybe even worse on some terms. But the discourse was different. And I think that the discourse also matters. Yeah, when you don't have members of the ruling government talking about the Arab citizens of Israel as a threat, but actually maybe as a population that presents a great opportunity for this country. I, I agree, it makes a difference. And sitting in the government with the left, you know, um, not in describing them, targeting them as uh, traitors, unpatriotic, etc. It, it has a meaning also. Yeah, that's true. And we'll see if it survives into the uh, next election. I think this will be maybe the biggest test and the one that will provide the answer to the question I asked you a few minutes ago, if the whole Uh, experiment, as it was called, was a success or a failure, the Israeli public will have to decide. That's true. But on the other hand, you know, the Israeli public has been deciding and deciding and deciding <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> and uh, it seems like the decisions, you know, are not, um, we're in a loop, basically. We're in a political loop. I, I didn't think last year around Rosh Hashanah that um, we'll have another election. I have to admit, I think I wrote some kind of a column expressing some optimism about finding stability and passing that a state budget. That will teach budget. you to be optimistic. Yeah, no, never again, never again. Um, in the wider regional arena in the Middle East, I think this was not a year of change. It was a year of uh, more of the same, and in a way, the bad same staying in place. Uh, not even staying in place, kind of like re-emerging even. Growing stronger. Um, if we look at Assad, if we look at uh, MBS, um, Putin, of course, and you know the wider Russia is now a major player in the Middle East. So all these leaders, it wasn't the best years for liberals looking at you know what's happening here in our region. Yeah, the issues of human rights and democracy in this region have not made a lot of progress in the year 5782. I don't think uh, MBS uh, celebrates the Jewish Rosh Hashanah, but if he was looking back on what happened between September of last year and then this summer, he has grown much stronger thanks to Putin's war in Ukraine and then Biden having to come to the region and beg for the Saudis to start drilling more oil. So someone who was supposed to be a pariah from the point of view of this U.S. president is now the strongest player in the region. On the other hand, um, you can also claim that the fact that um, 
MBS had to show how much, you know, he's not the guy that he was portrayed in Western media. And the fact that they understood that in order to have Biden, you know, to, to make this visit happen, they need to have a different image uh, in the world. And the fact that Putin is actually losing at the moment and the fact that there is a whole coalition and NATO actually is getting stronger because of what happened. If we really want to be optimistic, <laughs> we can also look, you know, at those facts. Yeah, no, now you surprised me. Uh, but uh, I think it's true that when we look at Putin and we'll talk about Ukraine in a second because I want to bring that to the conversation from the Jewish point of view. But maybe it was also a warning to some of the autocrats in this region that if you're looking for an alternative to the United States, you should think twice. The Americans can be annoying when they ask you questions about human rights and they want you to do this or that, but they might be a more reliable partner than Putin's Russia. And people were talking about how, you know, during Trump's presidency, the U.S. is pulling out of the region. Suddenly the U.S. wants to show that it's still a major player in the region. Um, so again, that too is complex. And uh, on the issue of Israel and the Middle East, it was a year in which the Abraham Accords seemed to be prospering, growing slowly but steadily. You wrote a lot about that um, and about the question of whether the new environment between Israel and the Gulf could somehow also open opportunities for Israel and the Palestinians. That's another interesting trend that we saw over this year. Yeah, I think that um, a year ago we would look at the, from a leftist liberal point of view, we would say, you know, that the Abraham Accords, although they're positive on one hand, on the other, um, it pushes aside the Palestinians yet again and, um, you know, reduces the chance for negotiations because the leverage that uh, the Arab world had on Israel was they can only have peace if they start with the Palestinians first, etc. But I, I think that now they're actually a player here in this country, not not only in the region, um, if we really look at the longer term, of course, it's their choice how much they want to uh, use their presence and uh, the accord still as a leverage also on the Palestinian issue. But I don't think they're ignoring it. Uh, if we look at, you know, some incidents that we saw around uh, Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the fact that, you know, there's now uh, an Emirati embassy here in this country and they can actually, you know, be involved in the ambassadors, even if it's not public, he still has something to say. And also, once the relations are public, there are a lot of pressures from all sides that did not exist when it wasn't a public relation. And we saw also during the short... I don't know if we can call it a war, but those days of fighting between Israel and Islamic Jihad in Gaza over the summer, that the Arab countries were one of the motivating factors that pushed Israel to end it fast. Uh, it was more Egypt than, and, and Jordan to some degree than the Gulf states, but uh, the Gulf states are now part of this circle of Arab countries that have an influence and on Arab, Israel. And Arab politicians within the coalition. In the end, you know, the, yes, there was another round in Gaza. This is, you know, if you want to look at that aspect, yes, like always, the uh, glass you know, the empty. change yes. didn't, right, the change didn't change the fact that we once again had a, a, a round in Gaza um, and it was violent, it was horrible, etc. But it was much shorter. And the fact that it was much shorter 
has to do with a different government, different players within the government, different players here in the region and here in Israel, their presence from other Arab countries that, you know, now they also have something to say. And moving on to the Jewish world, when, when I thought about the biggest Jewish story of this year, so you always kind of have a bias toward late breaking stories like the big discussion that we've had here in Israel and in the U.S. recently about uh, education in the ultra-Orthodox society. Uh, and there's been a lot of fascinating articles on that subject on Haaretz recently. I really recommend the readers to look for what Anshul Pfeffer has written about it and other interesting articles. But I have to say the biggest story to me is the war in Ukraine. And I consider it, it's not only a Jewish story. Obviously, it's a huge global story that impacts everything. But when I look at Vladimir Zelensky in uh, Kiev standing up and staying there, and I remember that this is the only Jewish head of state today outside of Israel, And when I look at the mass Jewish immigration that has been caused because of this war, it's part of, again, a huge wave that is uh, going everywhere. And Russian immigration Russian as well. As well. Um, I, I think this is an event that will have many implications for the Jewish world for years to come. Some of them we don't even understand right now. I think you're right. Um, it was, uh, I mean, we even saw that here in Haaretz uh, when we saw, you know, how many people are coming to actually read the news about the war here in Haaretz. You know, sometimes it's, it's interesting because, as you said, we focus on Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. But when there is a war in uh, Ukraine, of course, we cover it as well. And suddenly we saw that people are, you know, interested in these stories, even though they can read them <laughs> in the New York Times and The Guardian. I don't know where. Um, and I think the reason is, um, first of all, there was a Jewish angle to it, wh- whether we wanted to or not, when, you know, at first, um, the Holocaust became, you know, part, the, of, the, the part of the narrative, right? Yeah. That was the very beginning. Then afterwards, there was also the question of the actual Jewish communities. And then afterwards, Israel tried to, uh, you know, successfully or unsuccessfully tried to insert itself um, I- into this uh, story. And, but also, I think, in terms of, uh, you mentioned Nanjil Fefel, so for example, you know, the way that he covered it from his own experience covering military conflict uh, elsewhere um, was, I think, something that people could get a very um, interesting uh, angle that maybe you don't get elsewhere. All this uh, commercial aside <laughs> for you know, Haaretz. It's good to promote um, our, our writers on this kind of uh, for, uh, right. forum. I like But it. all this information also told me that, 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 yes, this is indeed also a Jewish story in some sense. Yeah, and, and I remember for me, one of the uh, most interesting stories that I was editing this year was Judy Maltz, our Jewish world correspondent, going to Germany to interview the thousands of Ukrainian Jews who had the option to come to Israel when this war broke out and preferred to go to Berlin, Germany, with all of the symbolism around that kind of choice and what it tells you about today's Jewish life in Israel and in Europe. And I think here in Israel, one of the questions that we have not yet fully uh, dealt with, with, you know, with the seriousness that it uh, deserves, is where Israel chose to stand on this war. Yes, and uh, up to, you know, even now, or even when there's a new prime minister, uh, and um, you know, supposedly there could have been a different agenda, they're still very, very, very careful not to, not to pick a side. This is because, of course, you know, what we said before, Russia is now uh, a major player um, in the in the Middle East and specifically in Syria. And I think most Israelis, you know, they understand that in um, from a pragmatic point of view, um, it, it, it's reasonable. 
war, that Israel doesn't want to vocally uh, pick a side. But on the moral level, on the symbolic level, I think that a lot of Israelis were also kind of concerned because because of that aspect, if we're supposed, you know, to be this uh, moral beacon in terms of... A, but, you know, again, we can look here at home and ask ourselves, why aren't we, you know, this moral beacon first here before we go to the Ukraine and Russia? That's a good point. No, before we depart, I want to ask you if you can think of one potential story or issue that you think will make bigger headlines in the next year, starting next week, uh, than it did in the year 5782. I have no idea. And I have no idea because uh, really journalists, I always say, are the worst prophets. That's true. Uh, we ne- you know, think of Trump, think of Brexit. We never predict the right things. So <laughs> not because I don't want to take a chance. I just, I have no idea. Everything in Israeli politics is so hectic. You know, we never know. What, I don't even know what's the big story tomorrow. How can I even tell you what's the, <laughs> you know, biggest story for next year? I, I know what's going to be a big story tomorrow, but we'll keep it for, you know, to keep the, reader, the listeners in a bit of suspense. <laughs> um, to me, one hope is that next year we are not going to be covering another election, round number six, but can't be ruled out either. Um, and that by next Rosh Hashanah, there will be maybe, maybe some optimistic improvements to discuss on our podcast well that's a you know um it's very hopeful i can only join your hopes but i'm not sure that would be the case well in any case uh, i do want to thank you for joining the conversation today and again to invite our listeners to look for some of the coverage we talked about today great stories about the war in ukraine over the past year And commentary by Anshel Pfeffer and Amos Arel and Lisa Rozovsky, who's been doing exceptional coverage of it. And of course, on the Abraham Accords, which we'll see in which uh, direction they go next year. Um, so thank you so much, Noah. And thank you, listeners, for being with us through this past year. Next stop, the interview with Nir Bar-Am. And our next meeting will already be in the Jewish year 5783. Our guest today is Israeli author Nir Bar-Am. Hi, Nir. Hi. Uh, your recent book, World Shadow, was just published in English as we are meeting today. It's September 13th at the Haaret Studio in Tel Aviv. So by the time our listeners will hear this conversation, they will already have plenty of options to read it um, wherever they are in the world. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I think the last time we met, actually, it was several years ago, not here in Israel or at Haaret, but in Washington, D.C., Um, I was there at the time working for the paper, and you came to speak about your previous book, Land Without Borders, which dealt with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and was more of a travelogue. Yes. Now, both of these books, the new one, World Shadow, and the one that we spoke about last time we met, Land Without Borders, are very political books, also very different. Uh, one more, I would call it a documentary, and also became a documentary film later. And the other is a novel, Um, is there something that unites the two? Uh, not really, uh, but I need to think about it. Uh, World Shadow basically is, a, is kind of a global novel. It begins in Jerusalem in the 80s, then it goes to different locations and different, uh, different times, different story, different plots. There is London, yeah, there, there is, is Congo. Yeah, there, is the, the, there, is a, there is a group of young Londoners that wants to create this uh, amazing strike of one billion people and they are starting to use violence to achieve it. This is like in a wee voice in the novel. And then there is MSV, which is an American consulting firm that does political uh, 
campaigns all around the world. And uh, so these are the main two forces in the book. And then there is Gavriel Mansour from Israel that is the kind of social climber that wants to, to achieve something, to advance his career. To move up the social ladder. Yes, and, and he's, he's, he's kind of the connection between all the, all the different parts in the, in the novel. And it tackles one question that always, uh, I always find interesting, and this is this encounter between the individual and the, and the different forces in the world. Uh, you know, once go out to the world, person he believes in certain things he has this ethics uh, things he believe in and then he wants something from all the forces that he meets and the forces could be different you know it's like the, uh, the newspaper you are working in uh, the society the rules of the regime and then he wants something from them he wants like, to advance his career to explore his talents and they want his loyalty and his talents and this encounter is very interesting for me especially in capitalism because you know regimes that they wrote about it before like Stalinist regime And the Nazi regime, they demanded your loyalty and your talent. While capitalism, in a way, only demands your talent. It doesn't care if you believe or not. So this, this, this book is also deals with people that, you know, they believe in certain things. They go to protest, and I saw them in many places in the world. And then in, in the morning, they go out and work for Google and Facebook, and they don't see any contradiction between it. There's my job, my day job, and then there's what I do in my spare time. This is very yeah. ingrained within the capitalist way of life. separation this disconnection between what you do and what you believe in and in previous generation like in my father's generation I think there was more connection between what you do and what you believe in to me the one thread that I did feel connected the two books I have to say was the issue of inequality but with in, you know in, in a land without borders you dealt with inequality here in Israel and the very very striking inequality between Jews and Arabs in this land. Um, and then world shadow I think deals with questions of inequality on a global level and this one billion people strike that you talk about <laughs> which is I think an interesting idea uh, to discuss because we've had a lot of coverage recently in the media all over the world of this phenomenon of uh, people who are uh, you know quietly resigning um, or doing the bare minimum of their work and sense of workers that uh, that work, can no longer provide for you a future is something that a lot of people are dealing with these days. Yeah, the, the difference between a novel and uh, a non-fiction book is that no, I think that a novel doesn't have any moral. It just tells a story. Yeah, and, and if it has a moral, it tries to convince you in certain ideas, it's not really a good novel. So I was in Spain when, when World Shadow came out, and I was interviewed in El Mundo and El País, which are two rival uh, newspapers. So one of the interviews was... was like a, this capitalist global reporter, and the other one was like a, a striker, uh, someone who believed in a revolution, communist. Both of them thought that the book is a book about their ideals. <laughs> do, 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 do you see that as a compliment? Yeah, I do. This is the only compliment that I really th- think it's important because, you know, when you write characters, in a way, you need to put on your face the mask of the character and then believe in it. To put the mask is very easy, To believe in it in, is not, which means that you need to believe in every character you write. You need to understand it, even if it's, uh, you know, like someone in MSV who does this uh, election in Bolivia and Congo involving all, so, 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 all so, these so, crimes. So I want to say a sentence about that. This MSV company that basically manages election campaigns and dirty tricks all over the world, again, 
to me as a journalist, sounded very familiar. We write about companies like these all the time now. And uh, interesting enough, there is an Israeli involvement in one or two cases here and there, let's put yes. it that way, including the you know, in Rwanda. Cy- cyber weapons yeah. and spying. Where did you get the inspiration for that from? Well, basically, uh, it starts like uh, you know, to, to investigate films like this. Then, but but in, in a novel there is a certain amount of research then you need to start to use your imagination so this MSV company does not really exist and in a way it's like uh, it begins like a normal company and then you see this is like this is like a company that goes crazy the mechanism of the company goes crazy as the book prolonged but I need to say that all the all this part of the company is only through emails between the different employees so all these people they still believe that they advance positive goals. They are like doing the best they can. While the strikers in London that are poor people, people you know that don't, doesn't believe in anything, but because they don't believe in anything, they can go outside the system and say, and say we want to create this chaos. We don't want to protest like all the protests in the Western uh, world the last 30 years that failed. We also want to use violence. So, so the book, in a way, understands both sides, and, and, and this is what makes the reader think. And I believe that you always need to make the reader think about everything. So I think that this, this book is like this, uh, you know, uh, it's crazy battle between different forces, and, and, and when you read it, you don't know uh, who you like, who you believe, And who, who is right? And I think it's a good thing about the novel. I can say as a reader, you can feel at times that you sympathize with the people who want to break it all, but you also understand. And I think it also depends where you are in your life personally, where do you meet this text. But uh, I can also understand the people who say, right now I'm working within a system, trying to do what I can from within. And it's an, an age-old dilemma, uh, but I think in your book, really attuned to our times. Um, and, and I need to say, there is always a story that you tell to yourself. And the story you tell to yourself is always, in a way, positive towards your ideas and your intentions. I, I want to ask you to talk a bit about yourself. To book readers here in Israel, you're very well known, one of the most successful authors in the country in recent years. Um, and uh, maybe to some of our listeners abroad who've seen the books and seen your name, don't know... So much about your biography, and to me, when I read about Jerusalem in the 1980s, I felt there was also um, something about you going back to some previous stage of your life. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, yes, because you know I grew up in a political family in uh, Jerusalem in Jerusalem from the Labour Party, and I saw in my neighborhood in the 80s how you know it, it was a, a neighborhood of mi- middle class, journalist, professor, and you saw the shift in the 80s. And people started to earn money, but they still wanted to believe that they are living in a kibbutz and th- this was a contradiction I saw when I was like nine or ten that these people have uh, more and more money, but they still act as if they are uh, socialists they are socialists and and i always and this is something that you know that I remember when I was ten and eleven that i i I used to talk to my parents and tell them you know they are very rich. And, but you, you couldn't say the word rich in our neighborhood in a way. It, it was an insult to yeah, say someone is rich. But they became more and more rich. And in the end, in, the, in, the, in 2000, they started to admit it. But this process was very interesting for me. And also, uh, you know, I grew up in a in family when the peace was a very important part of the, left, of the left wing in Israel. I think it was the whole idea of the left wing in Israel in the 80s and 90s was peace. There was nothing else, basically. 
the process that you described that happened to the Israeli middle class, uh, the old, uh, you know, uh, ruling, founding elite of Israel, it's very interesting. And I think when we look at the country today, there is a much more open discussion about it. Today, yeah. it's very clear that voting patterns in Israel correspond very strongly with social economic status, for example. Yes. I mean, and, and I think that Gavriel Mansour in the book, the difference between him and all his partners in the 80s, he doesn't come from Beta Karen. Be- Beta Karen is the, is the neighborhood that you grew up in. By the way, I, my, my brother lives there today, rents an apartment. Beautiful neighborhood, um, all Jerusalemite homes. Uh, and as you said, used to be very affiliated with the Labour Party. Um, Now it's different. And today, I think, one of the richest neighborhoods in Jerusalem yeah. also. So, so Gavriel Mansour, the protagonist, the Israel protagonist of the book, he comes from the, from the center of the city. His father was a businessman. And then, but he does business with all these people from the Labour Party. And Gavriel is ambitious and wants to be rich and successful without trying to hide it. And they look at him and they see this, uh, this vulgar social class. Wannabe. Wannabe. Uh, because he doesn't hide his ambitions. They are ambitious as much as him, but they need to disguise their ambitions behind ideology, like many people do. I think this encounter is very interesting, not just in Israel. You know, everywhere the book was published, in Mexico and Spain and Germany and uh, Norway and other places and uh, Italy, it's the same pattern. You know, it's, it, it's a book about basically human condition in our time. When you look at the election that's coming up here in Israel and the, the state of the Israeli left uh, today, do you think this debate is also relevant to the Labour Party and Meretz in their current form? The, the left uh, is not really existing in Israel right now. You know, it, it's not really, really a friction of the politics. Of, it's like 10%. And, and of, the, of the political system. Of the system. political system. Yes. And, it, and, it's, and, and, and the voters coming only from uh, upper class, maybe some middle class, but not like in the 90s when they have this great coalition. Now it's only come from the upper class. And I, can, I don't see any party that come from the upper, that the voters come from the upper class in this way can really uh, uh, advance or offer something to the general Israeli public. And it's really a very interesting case what happened to the Israeli left because it happened in 20 years. almost erased and uh, and and so now when you I, th- I think y- y- your father was a minister in the Rabin government yes right that's 30 years ago when yes. the Labour Party and Meretz together had 56 Knesset seats yeah, out, 50% of, out of out of 120 and right now if they get 10 together in the election it will be an, an achievement so and and this is something that it's like unexplainable in a way but I think it's d- definitely connected to the peace process I mean, they, I mean this, this, they, they have this one grand important idea that they carry the two-state solution. For 25 years. It's not a two-state solution. I think it's the peace. And when this idea broke and shattered in the second intifada and after came David, they had nothing else to offer. But there is, I, I have to challenge you with an argument that uh, my colleague Anshel Pfeffer wrote on Haaretz this week, which is that he said the Labour Party still exists. Today, it's just called Yesh Atid and the Machane Amamlachti, the National Unity Party of Benny Gantz. Together, they're going to get probably 40 seats in this election. This is like the big uh, Labour Party of uh, Yitzhak Rabin at the time. It's just not called Labour anymore. It's the same voters. I would say this. Uh, I, I don't think it's right. Uh, Lapid and Gantz are not left. The only reason that people think about them as left 
because they are part of the obsession against Netanyahu. And everyone who is part of the obsession against Netanyahu is left. Like that in the U.S., every crazy uh, supporter of the war in Iraq and George Bush that now is against Trump is part of the left wing. I think it's, a, it's not only a mistake. It's like giving your opponent, Trump or Netanyahu, the ability to totally shatter your worldview. because you are willing to sacrifice everything in order to defeat him, which maybe it's important. But, but in the end, people ask you, what do you offer? And in Israel, when you think about the left, it's close to nothing. No positive idea for the Israeli society, and they see it. Do you think maybe it's time for these parties to get over the issue of a two-state solution and think of an alternative? This is a discussion that I know you've probably had a lot following a land without borders, but yeah. it's, it's just as relevant now when we are... Uh, month and a half before an election I think that uh, after what happened in 2000 in Camp David it was like the left almost forgot about the idea of peace no well reason. you know there was a reality that we all yeah, lived of through course. And, and there was the intifada I'm not blaming anyone um, but I'm saying this would happen and it's like this for 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 20 years and more of the more more important the left doesn't even play the In the security and foreign policy uh, game you, can, you, you, you cannot in Israel it's not like no way you cannot really build a, a political movement when you don't talk about all these things that people care about Jews and Arabs and they don't talk about it so I don't think that you need to forget about the two-state solution I think it's impossible to implement it and then what what should be the alternative is the so you need to think about the alternative you need to offer something that For people who really believe in equality between Palestinians and Jews in Israel. And I, I believe in equality. I believe that we need to end occupation. I think this is very, very important values that uh, Palestinians and Israelis would, would be, live in equality. And I think that we sh- should uh, fight for it and start to think about the solution after the two-state solution is not uh, feasible anymore. Because right now, as you said, These parties are not really seen as legitimate players in the security arena, no. although they do have a policy, supposedly. They say we need to go back to negotiations and a two-state But solution. But with who negotiations? No, this, they say we need to go to negotiation. This is not a positive, uh, a positive idea. What do you mean? You need to go to, so people say you go to negotiation, and then what happens? it will fail and there will be terror. You need to really offer something more substantial. But uh, the alternative that we began discussing, it also means getting rid of the legacy of that Rabin government that you spoke about, which is the Oslo Accords that created the Palestinian Authority and created a road that was supposed to eventually lead to a Palestinian state. And it's been three decades, and we see that road is not leading us anywhere right now. Yes, I think that in a way, in the end, what, what's so tragic about it is that because... The Oslo Agreement brought the Palestinian Authority. It made the occupation more possible for a longer time. You know, always I ask my right-wing friends, let's forget about Oslo. There is no Oslo, no Palestinian Authority. Right now, you're responsible for 5 million Palestinians. This is a problem, right? You don't have any solution for it. Uh, but yes, I think that we need to think about the next stage after Oslo. And I believe in every solution, any solution that will bring peace. But realistically... We are very very close to a one state reality, and we just start to think about what kind of uh, state it will be.
So going back a little bit to the global uh, element of uh, world shadow, the, the one billion strike, to me that also felt like a bit of a legacy of the COVID uh, year that we all <laughs> lived through. Is there a connection there? No, no. First of all, I wrote it before the COVID, and I don't see any connection between COVID, which I have a lot to say about, and, and the one, one billion strike. The idea of the strike is not just to create this one billion people who will strike. It's to freeze the world for one day. This is where I felt that it's... it's, it's that this yeah, is where I felt the connection. Then. They want to make the world stop. They want like to... to temper the wheels of the world in order to bring the world to a certain chaos. And from the chaos, they wanted to start to rebuild new institutions, a new economy, etc. Th- th- so this is where, to me, it reminded of those months of March and April 2020 when the world stopped. Yeah. So ba- basically, it happened in the COVID in a totally different way. way. It, it, it was not a protest. It was the government stopping the world. And so it's, it's very different. But, but you really saw in the COVID how government is still... Uh, important. You know, people say it's the corporation, it's uh, Google. Government is still very strong and sometimes it could be very dangerous. They are more dangerous than all these corporations because in the end they have this power, like military, military power to stop you. To say, don't go there. Don't do this. Stay at home or we arrest you. It's something that corporation can do for the time being. And that's the difference between a uh, The world being stopped because of a protest movement and the world being stopped because of a government decision, there is actually the force to enforce it to make it happen yes and and also they have all this uh, encouragement from many people in in the public sphere they told everyone stay at home, stay at home, stay at home uh, anyway, people from different places in the world sent me photos from the covid time and told me this is what you imagine in world shadow, which was very which was really close because you saw the streets so empty. But uh, I saw a different vision. You saw a vision where it, uh, it's meant to cure the world of the disease of inequality. No, not necessarily kill the world, but I saw it as an act for redemption. And in the COVID, it was a bit different. Nir Baram, thank you very much for thank joining us much. today. World Shadow out uh, in the U.S. starting from September 13 when we met to record this interview. Batslacha. Toda. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you, listeners. And thank you to our producer and editor, Avi Rosentzvi. As I said earlier, we will not have an episode next week because of Rosh Hashanah. To those of you celebrating, we wish Shana Tova. And to everyone else, for now, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Shalom from Tel Aviv.